0: This is FemPower Power Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, starts
1: now. I'd like to use the terminology. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. Okay. So instead of focusing on supporting people to have healthy lifestyles and the things that are going to promote health, like exercise, like a good diet. And it's like that old adage, you are what you eat. And so if we had better diets, we exercised and we Got appropriate sleep, the health of the nation would be transformed.
0: Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. Today is the launch of a very important book that, quite frankly, should sit on every woman's bookshelf. It's called Taking Care of You The Empowered Woman's Guide to Better Health. And today, the authors of this book, Dr. Mary O'Connor and Conwal Huck, Join me to share more information, but I did want to share an important quote to give context. It's time for us to transform ourselves and our communities from ailing patients to thriving agents of health. Women can turn the key, leading the change from reactively treating disease to actively promoting better health. And that is a quote from Conwal Hawk now isn't that inspiring making you want to have this on your shelf so check out my show notes for links to the book as well as how you can get a hold of these co-authors because they are looking for feedback to make sure that they are able to support you best so now let's dive into the conversation so thank you both so much for joining the fempower health podcast today I've interviewed over 80 experts in women's health, and either it's been patients, because we know patients are also experts on their own body, clinicians, um, femtech founders, and it's clear that much needs to be done. But one of the foundations that we're still trying to understand is, how do we as patients prepare for our doctor appointments and understand what's going on with our bodies? And so you have a lovely book coming out, And it's really going to, I think, help so many women. So the book is called Taking Care of You. And why don't we start by you both giving your introductions and background and why you wrote the book. So Mary, do you want to start?
1: So my name is Mary O'Connor. I'm an orthopedic surgeon by background. I spent the majority of my career in the Mayo Clinic system. I was chair of orthopedics at Mayo Clinic Florida. I practiced medicine for decade, long time. Um, In 2015, I was recruited to Yale to create an integrated musculoskeletal center. And then I left there in February of 2015 and left the comfort of academia to co-found Vori Health with my partner, uh, uh, a spine neurosurgeon named Ryan Grant, because we really felt that we need to transform the delivery of musculoskeletal care. There's a lot of inequities Uh, Women, individuals of color, people in um, less affluent rural communities uh, do not get the same quality of health care as others do. And I have seen this firsthand as an orthopedic surgeon taking care of countless women who would come in and say, You know, I never felt that my voice was heard. No one's listening. No one's taking me seriously. And, you know, I I could just write a, a whole book about that. So, anyway, uh, probably about two years ago, uh, Connell and I connected at, when I was still at Yale, and um, we came up with this idea of writing this book for the average everyday woman. This is not a medical textbook. This is a book written by women, physicians, and health experts across the country in both academic settings community settings um, to really empower women to be better advocates for their own health.
0: And I think you have done an incredible job uh, with that. So, Conwall, why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll keep talking.
2: Sure. Um, thank you so much for having us. I'm Conwall Hawk. I'm a medical anthropologist by training. Um, my focus is really on health justice and education. And um, I specialize in doing community based participatory research, which means we work with community partners um, as we develop strategies and programs with their research. Um, I currently lead the women's health programs um, for the Arnhold Institute of Global Health at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And um, prior to joining Sinai, I was at Yale, um, and that was when I met Mary. And um, prior to Yale, I've also um, done internships and worked with the United Nations, AmeriCorps, and the teaching hospital Seashuka in Kigali, Rwanda. Um, And, yeah, I think this book is really a passion project um, for both Mary and I. This is what we've seen, what we've experienced firsthand. Um, And, you know, um, kind of like when you get angry enough, you want to change things. And so this was our way of really putting something forward that could help empower women and change the trajectory of women's health as it is right now.
0: So for those who have been listening to the FemPower Power Health Podcast, you know me well. I am not going to interview authors of a book for them to recite what's in their book. This episode is to take advantage of the nuances that may not be in the book. So why don't we start with why we are where we are In women's health and we're talking about the clinical trials that you started off by a lot of these women feeling like they're not being heard so who wants to start with this history of why we are where we are in women's health
2: so you know um when it takes drugs to be developed it takes a long time you've got to do cell studies you've got to do animal studies and you've got to do clinical studies and then you know goes through the regulatory affairs process and then um the the treatment can be offered to the public. Um, but it wasn't until 1994 that women were required to be in clinical trials. And then, you know, um, as we talked about just a second ago, before the clinical trials take place, the animal trials have to take place before that. And we were like, oh, wait, we forgot to do that. So in 2016 was when we said, oh, you know, in the animal studies, females need to be included. 2016 was yesterday, um, so that means we what we've designed up until now really has not been designed for women when we say like why is that primary the reason that's been given for women being excluded in the first place is because uh, researchers thought it was inappropriate for women of childbearing age um, to be included in these surgeries because or not surgeries in this research studies because of their fluctuating hormones menstrual cycle um, this makes things more complicated to study. So they're like, let's just not deal with any of that and not include the women. Um, but you know what, this has led to is now as drugs are introduced to the market, um, 80% of them that are taken off, it's because they have adverse side effects in women. Last year, I was at
0: the Women's Health Innovation Summit, and I'll be moderating a session there. And by the time this episode is published, it will have already occurred. But I will never forget one of the most powerful comments was by a female researcher who worked in academia and she apologized to the group for not having done women's health research justice because she was awarded at the speed of publication and how much she was publishing. And she said, let's face it, it's easier to do all of this for men than women. And because of the incentivization in academia, I wasn't doing what I needed to be doing. And I mean, it was just like, a wow, like I already knew these facts, but like to hear a researcher talking about how her role was being impacted, it's huge. You also talked a little bit about the paternalistic nature of medicine. So this is, you know, the clinical trials are more about the drugs, but what about this paternalistic way that we've been like where do you see that came from and, and where do you see us today with that and what else needs to be done there?
1: You know, m- medicine is a really complex topic and it's not realistic for someone to expect an individual to become as expert and knowledgeable as your physician is. okay That's why they went to medical school. That's why this it takes so long to, to to get that degree. But at the same time, it's you, you're the patient. And so the decisions should be made in a mutual way. And you know, we, we'll use the term in medicine, informed consent, right? If I'm going to do an operation on you, we're doing informed consent so that you have an idea what's involved, what the common risks are, likely outcomes. But it's really hard for patients to grasp all that. And remember, there's a lot of time constraint. You're in that office with your doctor or your surgeon for a short amount of time. That's why I always would advocate for someone, bring someone with you, right? If only just to listen to what's happening in that clinical encounter, because it's really hard, even like when I'm the patient and I'm going to see someone outside of my clinical field where I know more than the average person, but I am far from an expert, right? It's easy for me to miss things. So, so the, really what we wanted to do with this book is not, we don't have an expectation that people, the the women that are reading this book and using this book are all of a sudden going to be as knowledgeable, right, as the healthcare practitioners that are caring for them, but it will give them some baseline understanding and it will empower them with with questions that will help them understand what is happening better and allow them to be more active participants because the paternalism comes from the lack of what I'll call shared decision-making, which is when we're doing shared decision-making, we're taking into account your values and your preferences and pulling that into the treatment plan. I'll give you a perfect example, right? I would see patients coming into my office with bad hips and bad knees because I did a lot of joint replacements and we go through the whole evaluation and I'd say, here's an option. I mean, you're symptomatic enough. Your function's compromised. It's reasonable for you to consider this. To which they would respond, no way am I going to have an operation. Okay, that's fine. But then like, how did you get to me? Like, why did, your t- how, why did you even come to the surgeon then if you already know that that's not aligned with where you are right now. And that's perfectly okay. But you see, no one prior to that moment said to the patient, let's talk about what matters to you and how you fit this in to your values and your preferences. So that's the paternalism of medicine, which is I'm the doctor. I know what's best for you. You're just going to listen to what I say and do what I say. And that's, that's not how we should provide healthcare.
0: Yeah. No, I I completely agree and you know it's interesting I actually just interviewed an attorney where we talked about the impact of Roe v. Wade being overturned and one of our conclusions was how critical it is for women, I mean and everyone, but I know today we fo- we can't solve everyone's problem. Every the entire world and every nuance of every problem we're focused today on women's health, but how important especially for women because of where we are with the research to be as educated as possible to be able to have that two-way conversation. And so so back to your book, what I loved and how you structured it is you know we know that there's foundational questions like we know things like bring your medical records which we do or don't. <laughs> we track your symptoms. but what I loved is for every single condition, You had a chapter. And then in that chapter was a list of questions for that specific condition. And, you know, in this chaos of, I have symptoms, I'm stressed out, I'm anxious. Oh my goodness, what do I do? Reading that book, it's like, oh, it was like very clearly, logically laid out. And I felt at ease in going through that content. And I felt like, wow, if I had this then it would be so clear exactly the questions that I need to ask. However, a lot of what I see is we have all these symptoms. And I know when I've interviewed experts on PCOS, thyroid conditions, endometriosis, there are so many overlapping symptoms. And um, in some cases, we don't have a diagnostic for certain conditions. And so it's like, where do you go? Because we have a siloed healthcare system. So maybe we start with our general practitioner or OBGYN, but then we get diverted to, okay, if it seems like it's in the stomach, you go to the GI person. If it seems like it's you know musculoskeletal, it'll be this. If it seems like it's, you know what I mean? And then you keep getting, then that expert will say, no, it's not that. And meanwhile, you're continuing to get worse and the anxiety gets worse. So what I wanted to do today is, is maybe walk through a bit of a case study here to talk about, okay, you know, because the book, again, very structured. If you have specific things, and even in areas like I think you had um, period pain or something like that, where you did say, here's what could be causing it. So you did have some symptoms that are high level, but again, there still could be those challenges that are just really hard to get through. So I thought it would be really cool to do... The um, chronic fatigue syndrome case study, because it struck me that the people who are most at risk of it, or when it tends to hit, is right before a woman's menstrual cycle gets normalized. So you know, through puberty, it's scattered all over the place, but then in the twenties, it gets normalized, and then right before perimenopause hits. And when reading this, I'm like, hold on a minute, is have we really looked at chronic fatigue syndrome correctly? And so here's something that has all these symptoms. We know the person's tired, but I could see them being referred to so many different specialists before they're properly diagnosed and treated because let's face it, there's a root cause that we're not understanding. I don't even know how we begin to walk through this. So let's say I'm a patient, I go to my OBGYN, maybe we start there and I am tired all the time. And nothing I do is helping me get better. What what do I do?
1: So, Georgie, the fragmentation of the healthcare system is such a problem, okay? Because the scenario that you just described is the patient is shuffled from one specialist to another, right? A report goes back to the primary care physician who's like throwing their hands up in the air saying, I don't know what's wrong, I need help, I'm sending you to all these specialists. No one's coming up with anything. And as soon as you're walking out of that specialist's office, they're like, done with you, okay? And so the challenge is, is, is really giving that woman a care team that is going to continue to follow her and stay with her on this journey to find the answers. And unfortunately, I mean, we'll just be honest. We don't have all the answers in medicine We poorly understand a lot of conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome, right? And first of all, the woman still has to get someone to believe her, right? Because that's the first barrier. Oh, she's exaggerating. She's making this up. It's so classic. You know, a woman will go in and say, I have nine out of 10 pain. A man goes in and says, he has nine out of 10 pain. And like, oh my God, he's miserable. And I have had family members harmed because Because they don't take, I know, if the same scenario had happened, and this individual was a man, there would have been a different outcome, okay? Because people just don't believe that women are not exaggerating their symptoms, which is ridiculous. But that's how we're brought up in this society, right? The men are tough and stoic and don't complain, and the women cry and, you know, woe is me, and it's all... I could use more colorful surgeon language, but my husband has trained me out of it. Okay. <laughs> um, so, first, we need, we, we certainly need more research to understand these conditions that are very difficult to really understand. And you hit the nail on the head. Sometimes we don't even have a test that can give a diagnosis. But I think the key, and we actually have a chapter in the book on this you know, when, you're, when your illness is a mystery, I think the, the real key is finding that physician. Who's going to listen to you and stay with you on the journey and help you find the ways to support your condition and your symptoms in a more holistic way? I will give you a couple examples, right? Let's talk about nutrition, let's talk about sleep, let's talk about stress. In the in the normal system, do patients get those resources integrated with the care that their doctor's providing them? Typically, no, and that's why. I left the traditional system to do this Vori Health startup where that's how we support our patients.
2: It really sucks because this is one of the things that kind of led me um, to becoming so passionate about this because I've gone through that experience myself of like having these weird symptoms and it not fitting a diagnostic category for lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, but you know, something autoimmune is going on. And so um, it's really frustrating. It's really challenging. um, And you know, and that was kind of what led to this and like researching like, oh, there's really not any information out there. Why isn't there? Why isn't the money being invested in this? And it does suck because, you know, you can read about chronic fatigue syndrome and it'll say we have no lab tests to verify this. Um, And it is a disease of like uh, exclusion. So they're going to kind of rule out the other things and then kind of make the way down. Um, And, this is really why we need to bring so much more focus and energy and time and funding to women's health research because it's it's not there. No, it's true.
0: Now, do you think like, let's say taking chronic fatigue syndrome or any, because I, I guess I don't want to label the condition because then it might imply that I'm judging something without full knowledge. So I'll, I'll be careful there. So taking a lot of these conditions that are um, difficult to understand, I, I'm wondering if if there's an opportunity to like flip it around and look at almost what are all these commonalities and what is the true root cause? Like, for example, I'm hearing so much about gut health and how optimal gut health has a huge impact on so many other things. And so sometimes I wonder, like, are we so focused on the label that we're forgetting to look at why it's happening. And if we looked at the why, there might be less labels (laughs) or more clarity because there's really more similar root causes than we can than we've ever really thought about.
1: I'd like to use the terminology. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. Yes. Okay. That is how our system is structured to address sickness. So instead of focusing on supporting people to have healthy lifestyles and the things that are going to promote health, right? Like, like exercise, like a good diet, right? Because now there's more and more research coming out, as you just mentioned, about even the gut brain connection. Okay. And it's like that old adage, you are what you eat. Guess what? We are what we eat. And so if we had better diets, we exercised and we got appropriate sleep, the health of the nation would be transformed, transformed. Okay. And then I'm just going to add a sidebar to that. What we tend to do is we want to blame individuals when they're not doing those things without understanding that for some people, particularly women, there are so many factors that make it difficult for them to have that level of healthy behavior because they live in a food desert or it's not safe for them to walk around their neighborhood at night because of gun violence. Okay, so these social determinants of health are very important. And around that are the policies that we implement on both the public and the private side related to access to health care, food deserts, etc. You know, I mean, it's. I'll share this brief story. When I first got involved in in health equity work, which is a long time ago now, um, i never realized that in my own town that the same supermarket chain had a that had a store in the poor the less affluent part of town charged more there for vegetables and fresh fruit than at my grocery store what like exactly like i that blew me away i'm like how can that be why is the price different wow like that's a private decision by that company to sell apples in my store at a lower cost than the apples in the neighborhood where there are less affluent people. The, I mean, it just blew me away. So all these, these factors impact the ability of women. And, and I know this, okay, I'll, I admit this sounds sexist, but women are the soul of health for a family yes. and a community. Women drive the healthcare decisions, and they drive what happens in the health of that family. And we, in my um, non, I chair a nonprofit group called Movement is Life. We have a community-based program, and I'll just share one story. So this, uh, we we empower these women. We teach these women about nutrition and movement, and we do motivational interviewing with them. And um, one of my favorite women, her name's um, Maria. And so Maria learns how to make healthier dishes, cook cook healthier food. And she goes home and her husband, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But she starts cooking the regular food that she makes for him and and the children and a healthy dish on the side for her. Pretty soon the children start eating her healthy dish. And lo and behold, the husband eventually starts eating her healthy dish. And I find that I mean that just i I mean that just gives me like goosebumps because I see she's like the pebble in the pond, and the ripples that she's sending out are impacting not just her but her children, her husband, and that's how we make communities healthier and so targeting how important women are in our culture, in our health and wellness ecosystem is essential and isn't emphasized enough.
0: What are some of these? Practical things that those who are um, in these underserved populations can do, um, you know, as if I'm that person or if I'm trying to help that community. Because I think the struggle is some of these solutions are hard. And I think one thing that comes to mind is if we do look at the foundations of health and how food is medicine movement um, also is so helpful. And there's all these foundations of if we did them, so many of us would be more healthy. And that actually makes me feel a little bit better because sometimes I hear these solutions of, okay, you have to go to this pelvic floor, physical therapist, that's $300 a visit. And there's only like 200 of them in the country and you have to drive 200 miles to see them. Like that's overwhelming. Like I, I I don't even know how that can help some of these underserved populations, but it sounds like you've got some practical things that doesn't just move the needle, it can actually move mountains. So, so tell us more about these practical things people should start considering.
1: So um, we, we created a program called Operation Change, which is our community-based program. It's 18 weeks long. We typically have 40 to 50 women. They all have knee pain and some other medical term, comorbidity, like diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, and, uh, and they're overweight or obese. And so they come in for three hours a week and it's very structured. There's an hour of education, an hour of movement, an hour of motivational interviewing where they break into smaller groups to try and understand what are their individual barriers to behavior change. Because at the end of the day, if we look at health, there's 11% that's related to medical access, which is a critical 11% if you're having a heart attack or you're in a car accident. About 24% that's related to social determinants of health in our environment, 22% genetics. We can't change that. But the majority is related 36% to our individual behavior. So I can't cure poverty right now, like as much as I would want to, right? But how can I impact health equity now? I can impact it by helping individuals that are receiving disparate care Ha, adopt healthier behaviors. So that's why we created this program. And what I learned from, and we have great results. I mean, 18% improvement, improvement in walking speed over 18 weeks, a, a startling 69% improvement in the, in their sense of hopelessness. Cause these women are all depressed. Okay. I mean, I would be too, if I had knee pain, I, don't, I have a lot of stress in my life, I don't have resources, I don't have a lot of money, you know, there's all these pressures on them. And so when we asked them, what was it about the program that was so meaningful to you? I really thought it would be the motivational interviewing, because that's what we were doing that was kind of different. Georgie, it wasn't that. It wasn't that. You know what it was? we brought them together and created a community. And it was the strength that they got from each other, the emotional connections that the women formed with each other, because women, we need emotional connections with each other. We are tribe people. Okay. We're not the solo hunter. Like we're not the guy going out there to kill the lion. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was the emotional connections that they formed with each other that gave them the the strength to make these changes. And that's where I realized like, wow, this is so important. This is what communities need. Women in communities need to come together. They need to form groups to support each other with or without operation change. I mean, people can do this on their own. They need to see themselves as having the power of being a health promoter to themselves and those around them. So uh, we'll send you the link to my TEDx talk on that. But what we did with the book was we actually have a chapter on uh, being a health promoter and really try to give women an understanding of some of these opportunities that they have to help not just themselves, but those that that matter to them in their lives.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I know when I went through my four-year fertility journey, I mean, oddly enough, I found it, I think, three years into my journey, but there was like a, a group for for that specifically through Resolve and um, the National Infertility Association. And I did find that that community is so helpful. And I think having a healthcare professional organizing it was probably also important as well.
1: Patients want to talk to other patients who are going through something similar? Okay, they may listen to me as their doctor, but they will, and, and not that they don't believe me, right? But there's a different level of emotional engagement and reassurance when you're talking to somebody that's actually gone through that.
0: So here's a question for you. You know, I was recently talking to a um, the CEO and founder of one of the women's health companies, um, and what she said is what we need more of is solutions. There's plenty of apps that are working on community building. We need solutions. What I'm hearing from you is we need more community. And so I guess I'd love your reaction to that. My initial um, reaction is those apps are building communities for the people who already have access to insurance, lots of money, a fancy cell phone, um, but they're not addressing these other communities. I see some head nods, but I'd love to get get your reactions to to
2: that. Both communities and solutions, like communities provide solutions, and I guess you know you can build community in so many different ways. Um, and I know apps are popular right now, but I think an app can't. Replace like the face-to-face interaction that we have. Um, and fun fact: Mary and I have actually never met in person, um, but we've we've done this. We've like poured our heart and soul into this project and worked with uh, 111 other women across the country who have contributed. So we've created this community of women um, who are health experts, who are um, medical physicians. Uh, that are really invested um, in women's health. Um, And so I think in that way, right, like what, what is community? What does community mean? It doesn't, you know, you can sometimes be in the same physical space together and not feel community. It's really like having that shared purpose, that shared mission, that shared drive and values, and creating that. And you you feel that you come alive, right? When you um, feel that someone cares about the same things that you care about, you work together. I think even as we worked through this project, the women that contributed because they put their time and effort into this because this is something that they really care about and everyone who has put any work in here they've put their heart and soul into this and um, you know this isn't something we were paid to do it's not something the proceeds are actually going to go to mayo clinic to further education and research Um, so this was really a labor of love Um, and i think that is community. And when you have that, once you have that sort of community, then you're going to work together and you're going to find those solutions. You're going to build those solutions. You're going to figure out where's the pitfalls and you're going to go forward. Um, I think those two go hand in hand. Okay.
1: Georgie, I just want to make one comment about the statement that we need solutions. Like, honestly, we need to go ask the communities what they Feel the solution should be like it's very paternalistic of us to go in and say we've created this solution for you right as opposed to going and saying to them where are your struggles what how, how can we help you that's how we came up with the operation change model and we don't you know uh, we go in there and we first have kind of a town hall session with people to say what are your needs and how 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 can we try and support you? So so we really have to listen to communities in terms of trying to understand what they need to help them, to support them in that.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's funny, I I would say the femtech equivalent for those um, femtech founders who might be listening it was interesting. I have this one app development company that I talk to like every six months or so. And she was, uh, my contact there, she said, you know, I have so many people that come to me with these great apps that they're developing and they start developing the app. And then they're like, so what problem are we solving? (laughs) So it's like the reverse. And so it happens a lot. I mean, I'm a consultant by day and I see it a lot with the clients. It's like, we have this thing, let's keep selling it. It's like, but do you understand like, who you're selling it to and what they actually need or how they're using your website. It's just being built in isolation. And so it's in so many aspects of our lives. And, and I completely agree. Really talking to the communities um, is, is, so, so critical. Going back to, I'm struggling to find answers. How do I do this? I do want to talk about Google searches um, because again, I, I guess I'm just thinking um, you know, like when we're in our most panicked state, anything logical kind of goes out the window. (laughs) And, you know, I'm thinking when I was like in year two or three of my fertility journey, like just any, I mean, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. And so I know Google is like the fastest, easiest place to go to. So how do we look at those Google searches? Because it's search engine optimization. And for those who don't fully understand it, there's all sorts of algorithms, dollars behind it like people will have to pay like if you're doing a blog and you want to be on that first page you have to pay search engine optimization blog writers who write a certain frequency that you publish a certain frequency to end up on page one of that google search so just because it ends up on page one it's not because it's the most scientifically validated research which i think is why they created google scholar so i I did want to at least explain that to um folks who are listening but you actually offered some
2: information in your book about that. So let's, let's verbalize that on the episode. Sure. So, um, you know, while the act of searching for health information online, it's not harmful in and of itself. It's really good to be concerned about your health and to try to find answers. Um, But it's really, really important to recognize that searching for health information online is just a starting point um, and it's not the final answer and it's certainly not a diagnosis. Um, So in our chapter, which is called, is Google your first responder? Um, Women can actually learn about how to find accurate information online Um, uh, what's accurate and what is um, reliable. And so you'll learn, you know, if you're looking at a website, is it a .gov? Is it a .org? um, What what are you looking at? Who was it written by? When was it written? And then, you know, what do you do with this information? You know, you don't just self diagnose, because let's be honest, every time I like look at Google, everything that comes up You know, I have a headache. It's going to turn into cancer in two seconds down that Google search. Um, But how do you take this information? And now, you know, I guess personal example, as I've learned, I'm like, oh, let me go find these articles. And I might find some research that has been done recently. And I'll go back to my rheumatologist with this and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And we can have an informed conversation about it, because at that point. You know i'm i'm like oh here's some research and i verified it you know this is coming from hopkins this is 2021 what do you what do you think about this um and so you're going to learn those strategies like in that chapter how to verify that information then how to take that information and work with your clinician because again like really want to iterate you know we're not going to self-diagnose but you can use these tools and utilize them to have better conversations more informed conversations with your clinicians um, to help them Uh, understand what's going on with you.
1: Georgia, let me just add a comment to that. Every patient self-diagnosis, every single patient I've ever seen came to see me with an idea of what was wrong with them in their head, somewhere in their mind, they had an idea of what was wrong with them. Then it either aligned with what I thought or it didn't. And if it didn't align with what I thought and I didn't know what they were thinking, because why? I hadn't asked them. I hadn't listened. They leave the office wondering if I'm right or if they're right, or they leave the office still in fear because, oh my God, you know, my mom had breast cancer and she had hip pain and now I have hip pain. And what if it's really breast cancer? So, so I plead with, my fellow medical professionals, right? It's critically important to ask the patient, how does what I'm thinking and sharing with you in terms of your diagnosis align with what you were thinking when you walked through the door, right? Because sometimes people have, and they're, and they'll be embarrassed or afraid to say, you know, Dr. O'Connor, I was I was really afraid that you were going to say that I have breast cancer because, you know, my mother died of breast cancer. And so that's where we have to connect with people on this level. They have to be comfortable to share those fears, basically, because sometimes they're fears and they could be, they could consider them irrational and then they're going to be embarrassed or afraid to share them. But if, if they're not shared, then you can't get them they're not going to get to where they want to be and I as their doctor want them to be so everyone self diagnosis everyone it's you need to acknowledge it you need to address it and and then that helps form the trusting relationship that we should all have with our healthcare team
0: consumer. Consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. And you had mentioned earlier that if there's um, an area um, of medicine that you need to go to for a health concern, you may have. If you're not an expert you also struggle with like what to do and and you know just like in in our friendships and marriages like there may be things we didn't communicate properly and it impacts things and fortunately or unfortunately you know i guess it's good that communication issues happen everywhere but when it comes to our health and we're dealing with something serious i mean that kind of stinks that there's this art to the communication and as the patient we may not realize Oh, we should have said that, and the doctor may not realize I should have asked that question. And it's there's just this this art to it. Um, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to me. And
1: Georgie, it comes down to the way we communicate too. Yeah. Okay, because men and women communicate differently. And just a little story, because you know I love stories. You know I've done thousands of joint replacements in my career, and. I would have men ask me questions all the time. Well, Dr. O'Connor, like, what's that hip replacement actually made of? (laughs) Like, what? What? Honestly, I'm like, what the hell do you care what it's made of? You want me to tell you the alloys that are in this particular component? Right? It's meaningless. I have never had a woman ask me that question. Never, ever. But you know what the woman asks? She'll say, Dr. O'Connor, how long am I going to be in pain after the surgery? To which I can't answer. So the interaction with that male patient, I can say, here's what it is. He walks out of there thinking, O'Connor, she knows her stuff. She could answer my question directly. Give me the answer. The woman walks out of my office saying, geez, I don't know, right? Dr. O'Connor was not able to really answer my question because I'm being truthful. I don't actually know. People are different. Could be this, could be that. But women ask different questions and they ask more emotionally connected questions than men ask, and and men, if 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 the male clinician is uncomfortable getting into that emotional zone, so to speak, that woman as the patient, in my opinion, is more frustrated.
0: Right. No, I would I would completely agree, and I um, and I, I kind of apologize, but I guess um to maybe my comfort zone is to try to bring joy to all situations, so so take this for, for that, um, is as you were talking, I was thinking about how when my friends and I would play the game Taboo, do you remember Taboo? And there's a word, and you you have to guess the word without saying any of the other words on the card, and it's timed. And whenever it was men versus women, every single time I played that game, guess who won? the men, because the women were explaining the story instead of just saying like some inside joke with like two sentences or like one word. And it was a fascinating observation. And I think it's such a parallel to how we communicate. And it's a shame because we have these 10, sometimes 25 minute doctor appointments. And we women, we feel we have these emotions that we need to understand because, and I think it comes from the caretaking, like we have to make sure we're okay so that everyone around us is okay. So we have all these questions and assurances that we need around the overall thing to feel heard and to be able to then take care of others. Whereas the men is just like, here we go. Okay. What do I need to do? Okay. We're done onto my like job or something. Um, And so I think that actually also plays into it this darn taboo example. I can't believe I just brought that into a healthcare podcast. But I'm telling you, I feel like it's a good uh, summary of of some of these dynamics.
1: You know, sometimes when I interview women for a position, I say, I want you to pretend you're a guy. And tell me all. (laughs) No, I do. Tell me all. Imagine you're a guy and tell me all the great things you did. You don't have to couch it. You don't have to say, oh, I've got to, you know, because I'm talking to, another woman, I have to somehow soften it. No. Act like you're a guy and tell me exactly how wonderful you are.
2: Yep.
0: No, absolutely. (laughs) You're never going to see the game taboo the same again. Just remember, never (laughs) men versus women because you will not win the game. (laughs) Or you could try it this weekend. Um, No, in all seriousness, so thank you for the guidance on the Google search. One question I do actually have about this is, I will admit, because of the way our healthcare system is designed, meaning it's for sick care, it's very much, you have an illness, here, take this medicine. And I am not at all diminishing the importance and value of medicine. I work for the industry. It's been my entire career. I have such passion for all the research that is done and the innovation and all the resources that are out there. But because we look at it as sick care, sometimes um, I I will admit, you know how I Google things now? One, I know enough to Google in pretty much detail my question, but I, you know what I add to it? Natural solution. Because I want to first find out like bloating, mint tea, not take this, take, you know, X. am not going to name a brand because I don't want to get in trouble. You know, take this drug. And guess what? The mint tea helped. And so I'd love to get your perspective on how we can even look at these um, Google searches, because again, we still do need those clinical trials, but they take time. And then the trial is done. And then you have to figure out how do you turn it into defining how practice is changed. And then you have to make sure the doctors are aware of updated guidelines based on the results of these clinical trials. And all that takes time. So if you're really sick, you don't really care. You just want it done. So so tell us how we do these searches um, to make sure we're not doing something that's not helping us. In other words, please validate that I just put natural solution on all of my Google searches.
1: <laughs> I love your question because, you know, in our in in this new telemedicine company that I've co-founded, right, where we surround the patient with a health coach and a non-surgeon doc and a physical therapist and nutritionist and nurse practitioner to help them improve their musculoskeletal condition, which ultimately still helps their overall health, okay? I mean, here's a, here's a fact. If I took people with low back pain and I did nothing but improve their sleep, their pain would improve. Hello. So why in our traditional system are we not recognizing that that's an important aspect that we should be uh, leveraging with those patients? So in our model, right? That patient, that health coach is working with the patient to help them improve their sleep, right? We're going to improve their diet, anti-inflammatory diet. We're going to work on stress. These things all matter. It's not, and shouldn't be just about pills or sending someone for an injection, which is only temporary benefit or a surgery. Now, some people still need surgery. We're not anti-surgery. I'm a surgeon. My co-founder is a spine surgeon. Okay. But it's recognizing that so much more can happen for an individual to get better on their own if you support them to do it, and you allow and you support their body and their mind and their emotion to, I'll say, heal themselves, so to speak, or improve themselves. So no, you're not you're not off base at all. The challenge is is that those Google searches don't give you that information. In an easy to digest format, you have to like go actively search for it.
0: Yep. No, it is, it is, uh, it is unbelievably true. Um, oh my gosh, I feel like we could do like eight episodes just talking about this topic. There's so many nuances. Um, so, what I would like to do is first, um, before I ask you to give your final thoughts, because I think. Um, the way forward um, is something we need to consider to feel positive about all these um, changes that are continuing to happen in women's health. I do want to quickly give a recommendation of how I would love for people to leverage your book, and tell me if if this if this uh, sits well with you. Is I would say this needs to be on every woman's shelf. I think when you buy the book, you read the beginning and the end skim through the middle so you have an idea of what's in there. And then when you have that specific condition or symptom, go to the chapter before you go to your doctor appointment, before you do your Google search, read that chapter because it will help you have targeted Google search words so that you get more targeted information. If you need more detail, write down all the questions, and then also before you have your stress incident, organize all your medical records so that when you have to go to the doctor, you have everything sorted. And that would be my ideal state of um, how this should work. Because I, I went through it and I was like, this is what it, it's, it was a truly incredibly written book. So um, I guess I'd love to get your reaction to, to that. Is that an okay recommendation?
1: I love that recommendation. I'll just add one thing. It would be when your friend, when your sister or daughter or mother has that has a condition in one of the 55 clinical condition chapters we have in the book, you're pulling the book out and saying, here, read this, right? I mean, like we want this book to be shared, you know, by mother, daughter, grandmother, aunt, you know, neighbor, coworker.
0: Absolutely. Um. So the way forward, um, there's a lot that is happening and continues to happen. so so tell us about some of the great things that are happening in women's health that we should be so excited about um, to know that it's not we're not you know stuck in the dark ages, there is change happening. So tell us about that.
2: I think um, uh, one thing I was just gonna add for you know women, how they use this book and like oh, what please. you were just talking about before with um, the natural remedies, one thing I was going to say is that we, um, especially I know that like the younger generations, they really want to be kind of like spoon fed. Um, Here's an easy solution. Take this pill and then you're done with it. But really... Um, health doesn't work like that and that's why we have that last section taking care of you that focuses on things like nutrition sleep exercise and these are things we hear all the time you know you got to eat right you got to exercise but what does that really mean right like how much do you have to exercise is walking okay do you need to run do you need to do like crossfit you know how strenuous does this need to be like there's a lot of questions about that and it can be super overwhelming to be in a place and be like oh my god I have to do like x y and z right so how do we take these tiny steps one at a time and how can we make these small changes in our life and so I really hope that that last piece of the book um, that is called taking care of you that's gonna help with some of those things Um, and while you were saying like being prepared for our visits um, we we recently made our website it's called www.takingcareofyoubook.com um and on there we also have like a resources page and it has in there you know like where you can print it out and you can make your daily care plan you can take that to your doctor's visit with you um the movement is life um, that mary discussed earlier they have a shared decision making tool you can use that you can print that out you can go you know you can be prepared i kind of wish you know now we're we're talking about this and thinking about it i'm like oh we should have made like a journal piece to go along with this that you can take with you to your doctor so you have all your vaccinations in there you have all your medical records you have all your family history and you're like whoop so i don't know maybe maybe second edition you can we can work there you go Yeah. Um, But, you know, kind of going back to how are we moving forward? I mean, I think this is one of the ways we're having these conversations. We're talking about it. We're becoming more informed about it. Um, And there's a lot going on right now in the femtech world, um, as you were talking about before. Um, Precision medicine is huge, and we're kind of looking at these specialized solutions. You know, like what works in um, patient A might not work best in patient B, right? It may depend on your genetics. Um, And... Um, previous conditions or um, comorbidities and how those interactions take place. Um, So there's a lot of great, amazing research taking place in that. But what we can do, each of us every day, is become better advocates for ourselves um, to take care of our health right now um and as mary stated earlier about being a health promoter you know we we talk about that that's the final chapter in the book how can you become a health promoter what are those steps that you can take every day you know taking a walk with your friends um exercising with a coworker, um, you know, cooking better for your family, um, or teaching them how to cook for themselves. Um, and so, you know, I think we can't really wait too long for clinical trials to to come up to speed um, and wait for these systemic issues of sexism to um, and racism to be like dismantled. We kind of have to start doing this work right now um, to help women today. Um, so I think that's what we're super excited about, um, empowering women and empowered women, empowering other women. I, yeah.
0: I agree. And, and this is truly an empowering book. I think, uh, just education is key. And again, the way you wrote it, I felt at ease. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, this is like a, an instruction manual. This is exactly what I got to do. So I could like eliminate in my head, all the spinning wheels that are happening. I just read the book and it's like settling. So it's like a plan. <laughs> So very, very well done. Anything? Any final comments? Um, anything I might have missed that you wanted to share? Or any any last minute comments? Uh,
1: Georgie, I would just say thank you. We're so delighted that you have us on the Femme Power Health podcast, and um, you know this book is really a labor of love, and we look forward to getting feedback from women who are using it. Um, you know, maybe they'll. There'll probably be a second edition at some point down the road, uh, but uh, getting feedback, uh, what they liked, what we could do better or different next time, I think that's important. And really, we'd love to hear stories about how the book helped women, because I think that what's happened now, and probably the bright spot, at least to me now, is women feel uh, more empowered to say, it's not okay for me not to get equitable care. It's not okay anymore. And I'm not going to stand back and let that happen to me or my loved ones. So we hope that the book will support those voices being able to have a, a better conversation about what they need and ask the right questions and just be more comfortable advocating for themselves.
0: Awesome. Thank you so, so, so much for your dedication to this. And I'll be sure to put all the information in the show notes. And so for those who want to see the book, the website, how to contact you to give feedback, et cetera, it will all be in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and dedication. And I can't wait to get this out to the public. Thank
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, Please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe. social media algorithms. Stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info. At fempower-health.com drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter your insights inspire our conversations and a quick note the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider it's not medical advice always consult with your doctor for health decisions and remember the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys and it's not an endorsement by fempower health Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time. And I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.